Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 53. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzama, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. What's up, Doc? (laughs) (laughs) Greetings, Christina. How are you? Oh, wonderful. Oh, I'm happy to hear that. Today's today's going to be great. I've been looking forward to uh, one of these conversations since we started. Uh, We're going to be talking today with Tracy Harrison. Uh, She is a health and wellness counselor who focuses on helping people to eat with purpose. And I think in uh, many cases, people eat to live. Some people live to eat. Some people uh, do variations on both of those themes. And I think today we're going to find out a lot of the questions that people are asking uh, about foods, all of the different things that are happening in the food market and, and comparing food and health and the things that we should know and shouldn't know. So I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of questions today. So I think maybe this would be a good time for you to tell our audience Uh, how to get in touch with us if they have a question for Tracy. If there's time for their questions, I might have so many. (laughs) (laughs) I would think so. I, I, me too. I, there's just so many questions. I may just ask for one sentence answers on everything (laughs) because I have thousands of questions. No, we'll just have to bring her back, you know. (laughs) It's a good idea. This will just this yes. will just be the appetizer. There you go. So, um, if you are watching this live on your uh, computer, you can actually scroll down, and there's a little box, comment box at the bottom there, where you can add your comment or your question, and press submit, and it will show up on my screen, and I will read it to our guest, and she can answer. And if uh, you would prefer to ask it yourself. You are more than welcome to call into our conference line at 323-476-3672. Again, 323-476-3672. And you would be asked uh, for a PIN number, and that number is 607-393-POUND. 607-393-POUND. And not to worry if you haven't written that down, it will actually show up on the screen during this live show. So we welcome all your comments and uh, uh, questions. Please uh, feel free to do so. Yes, I personally would like to welcome everyone. Greetings to uh, Magical Medical Tour. I am Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your host along with Christina today as we search another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy for optimal health, and I can think of nothing better than talking about nutrition today. So I want to get into this right away, and I would like to introduce our uh, viewing audience and to you, Christina, Tracy Harrison. Hello, Tracy. Hi, Glenn. Good Hi, morning. Hi, Tracy. Thank Hi, you for Christina. honoring us on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We just want to give you a little piece of sunshine from the West Coast. <laughs> oh, indeed. It's snowing here, so it's it's quite welcome. Thank you. Let's not tell anyone where you are so they could think it's snowing everywhere, but, <laughs> but where we are. <laughs> Tracy, 
As the medical guide, I like to uh, tell our audience the path I'm hoping to take today, of course, knowing that none of this may happen. But I want to start out uh, learning a little bit about you and your uh, history, when you got interested in uh, health and wellness and uh, nutrition, what brought you to where you are today, what your interests are in that area. Then we'll learn a little bit about what you actually do now on a daily basis in your practice. And then we'll start getting into some specific questions about uh, nutrition and foods and dieting and what's good and what's not. How's that sound to you? That sounds great. Let's go. Okay, let's go. So let's start out with uh, when you started. What, what happened? What got you interested? And what took you on your direction to bring you here? That's a, a fun question for me because it, it really was a, a major life transition. I, I had the, the pleasure of being raised in a restaurant and catering family hmm. and have always had a strong love of food and uh, loved to cook and was certainly taught how to, to cook well, especially good Southern food um, as a child. But I had a, a very long successful career in high-tech science in the semiconductor industry and have always loved chemistry and uh, enjoyed 17 years in semiconductors <laughs> and uh, went on a, an outward bound adventure into the mountains of uh, Rocky Mountains in Colorado. And one of the things you do on an outward bound adventure is what's called a solo, where you spend uh, 24, 36 hours by yourself uh, in a little 100 square foot plot of land trying to figure out what you need to say to yourself. Uh, and it turns out, uh, after you've watched an ant crawl about 50 yards over a 10-hour period, <laughs> you start to say some pretty bold things to yourself. And what I had to say is that it was time for a change. It was time to challenge myself with uh, a new career, new career opportunities, and a new way of helping people. Uh, I loved semiconductors. I loved being a manager. I love supporting individuals to be happier in their work environment. And I was really craving a way to work more directly with people one-on-one. -on -one. And really through just a lot of exploration and conversations with friends and synchronicity, certainly, I uh, decided to explore the notion of nutrition, uh, how to help people to get healthier and happier by changing what they put in their mouths. Uh, I certainly saw in the corporate world the number of people who were stressed out and exhausted and uh, struggling emotionally and physically in large part because how they fed themselves was way, way, way down on the priority list. And I, I certainly know firsthand and have now seen through thousands of, of clients just how much you can change your experience of life by simply changing up what you choose to eat. Um, so I, I went back to school, uh, I've done a tremendous amount of selective uh, additional clinical training, and, uh, and here I am, just uh, delighted and feel very blessed to have uh, changed gears and found a, a new career helping people in a much more personal way. That's really good. I, part of what we do on this show is to let people, especially kids that are thinking about careers, uh, to have the opportunity to speak with people that go into careers. And it's nice that you had a career and then went into uh, yourself and came out with another career, which is great, uh, thinking that we maybe all should be on outward bound 
uh, journeys to go inward <laughs> certain times. So, uh, so at this point, you don't consider yourself a nutritionist, do you? Or do you? I, that's a great question. I do not. I do not. Um, I, the, Technically, an, uh, a nutritionist uh, is someone that would be an, an LCN, a licensed clinical nutritionist, um, which in, in most states, uh, it does vary by state, but in most states is someone who has a, a master's degree in um, specifically in human nutrition or related field and then has passed a very specific board's test. Um, or, or some people who would refer to themselves as a nutritionist are actually a registered dietitian which is actually uh, a different um, curricula and board qualifying exam. But, but my, my preparation, my schooling is actually much more diverse than that. Uh, I've certainly studied quite a bit of nutrition, um, both at the, um, the Institute of Integrative Nutrition as well as the University of Bridgeport. Um, but I've also studied food science, um, functional medicine, and biochemistry quite a bit wanting really to go beyond uh, customizing diets uh, or helping people to understand specific nutrient deficiencies, but really looking at uh, the etiology of chronic disease. Um, that's really my passion, is uh, especially in the, um, the gastrointestinal and the autoimmune disease arena, to help people to unwind why they have a disease. Uh, I'm, I'm a very, very big believer that the body's natural state is one of seeking wellness. And, and when it isn't well, there's a reason. Um, we're not, uh, we may have genetic predispositions for certain diseases, but by and large, we behave our way into um, acquiring those diseases. And uh, my, my focus, my passion, my expertise is really helping people to understand how nutrients uh, play a role in uh, both the etiology of disease and suffering, but also in the unwinding and healing from it. Well, I like that. Uh, and I want to get into a lot of that. You mentioned integrative nutrition. What, how is that different than nutrition? Uh, that's a great, a great question. Um, the Institute of Integrative Nutrition is a, um, a school that is based in New York. And it is not a degree program, it's a, a certification program. That lasts about a year. And, and for me, it was a really wonderful uh, opportunity to springboard into, into a new career. It certainly didn't come close to providing the, the clinical or the biochemical background that I've needed to build my career. But it was a wonderful foundation that um, features learning about dozens and dozens of different nutrition and eating philosophies. Um, so mm. rather promoting a certain one, uh, we get to learn about um, Ayurvedic eating and Paleolithic eating and veganism and vegetarianism and literally dozens and dozens of different ways of eating. Um, really with, um, I think, promoting the truth that I believe in very strongly, that there is not a magic way of eating that works for everyone. Um, many people are looking for that holy grail of nutrition. Just tell me how to do it so I can be at my best health. But what makes me feel the best and what makes you feel the best may be very different. And, and I think we, in nutrition discussions, we would be better suited to helping one another by asking what makes you as a unique person feel the best, as opposed to proselytizing that there's a right answer that everyone needs to follow. 
Huh. Uh, very nice. I like that. Uh, I'd like to maybe start with a few simple definitions of things. As we get deeper, we're going to be using a lot of different words, and I just want to make sure that we're all speaking the same language. So we talk about nutrients. Uh, mac I know they're macronutrients, micronutrients. Would you tell us a little bit about that, just so that we're all talking about the same thing? Sure. That's great. Great question. Macronutrients are the things that we get caloric energy from. So when we think about foods, those are made up of uh, protein, fat, and carbohydrates. Uh, when we eat things like a, an apple or um, a, a carrot, by and large, the macronutrients we are getting are carbohydrates. Uh, when we consume things like uh, an avocado or um, flaxseed or um, some type of oil, like an olive oil, what we're getting is primarily fats. Uh, when we look at things such as uh, beef or chicken or salmon, what we're getting is primarily proteins. Those are macronutrients, and we think of them as being vehicles for calories. Um, there are certain types of molecules. Micronutrients, uh, we think about as being more about the nourishment um, of, of food. The primary categories of micronutrients are things like vitamins and minerals. There are actually many other ones, um, but vitamins and minerals are particular molecules that we get from food that our bodies need in order to complete certain biochemical reactions in order to run us. And there are a number of uh, essential um, minerals and uh, certainly uh, vitamins are essential. Um, the definition of a vitamin is a substance that the body has to have in small amounts that it cannot produce on its own. And, and this is why we have a limited number of vitamins and uh, a limited number of essential minerals, things like magnesium and sodium and potassium are, are essential minerals. Uh, vitamins are things like vitamin A and vitamin D and vitamin E, which are what we call fat-soluble vitamins, or things like vitamin B12 or vitamin B6, which are water-soluble. Uh, vitamins. Um, we do have to get those from our food or, or from a supplement. We have to get them externally in order to thrive. Um, but, but beyond vitamins and minerals, which is what most people think of in terms of nutrients, there's this huge world, um, especially from plant foods, of what we call phytonutrients. And um, perhaps the best example of that is, uh, let's take a stalk of broccoli. Uh, a stalk of broccoli has some some vitamin A, some vitamin E, some vitamin C, but it actually has over 500 different unique identifiable nutrients in it. So the vitamins are a tiny subset of the array of phytonutrients or phytochemicals or what most people loosely call antioxidants that we get especially from plant foods. And in the past decade or so, we're just beginning to broach the surface of understanding what all of these nutrients do in order to help us to thrive. When, even though we don't understand how they work, our body has obviously evolved for tens and thousands of years eating these things and pulls from it what it needs. 
uh, we're starting to learn the the magic of, of some of these. And I hope we'll get into that and talk about a few of them. You can't really pick up a, a newspaper or a magazine these days without seeing a, uh, a news flash on a new phytonutrient that we've discovered and the value that it adds to uh, thriving. Uh, well, I think we've got some good definitions so far. Uh, I'd like to talk for a little while just so that we get an idea of what you do, you talk about many things about uh, helping people to eat purposefully and also to unwind and to find out relations between uh, an illness and foods that are going into the body. So could you give us just a few minutes on how you see a patient, uh, what kind of a patient do you see? Do you call them patients? Are they clients? Uh, what's your work up for somebody uh, when you start to work with them and how does that happen? Sure. Uh, that's a great question. So in my work as a health and wellness counselor, I call them clients and I do all of my work remotely, uh, either via phone or, or Skype, just like we're, we're doing here, which uh, has allowed me to work with people all over the United States and in foreign countries as well. And I, I really enjoy doing a very lengthy, in-depth uh, intake session with each of my clients. Uh, it's very, very important for me to spend some time listening to their health history, their symptoms, and also their intuition uh, about the dis-ease. I like that phrase, dis-ease, as opposed to disease uh, in the body. And uh, I will also take a look at lab work that's been done in the past or, or diagnostic testing uh, in order to understand uh, what has already been found, uh, perhaps in their body, in terms of imbalances. And it helps me to make a map based on what they share on some of the biochemical dynamics that might be contributing to their, their disease or their discomfort, um, their inflammatory symptoms. And I will often recommend that my clients, either right at the beginning, which I guess is preferable, or certainly as we move along working together, pursue some follow-up testing in order to help to give us data to more accurately target our work together. And uh, my clients might pursue that testing with their primary care physician uh, or maybe with a, a specialist. Uh, fortunately, there's a fair amount of testing, uh, especially saliva. Uh, or urine testing that's available actually online these days, where if people are not able to get it through their physician, they can sometimes access test kits on their own in order to learn more about their body, which is a, a really exciting innovation, I think, in uh, medical diagnostic availability. Um, but um, I'm often looking for things like basic nutrient testing, um, serum levels or red blood cell levels of certain uh, minerals. Uh, or organic acid testing. Uh, we can measure the presence of certain organic acids in the body that are secreted by our cells in response to a deficiency in a certain nutrient. Um, we can test for detoxification ability, uh, the liver's ability to process toxins down certain uh, transformative pathways uh, to keep toxins from building up in our body, um, rather um, as opposed to being um, processed and excreted. I do a, a fair amount of food allergy and food sensitivity testing. Uh, it's amazing to me how often that is a major driver for systemic inflammation in the body. I think we're going to really start to see the medical research and media explode about that in the next 10 or 15 years. 
Uh, and then also um, stool testing. Uh, the old adage, I think, from uh, perhaps Hippocrates uh, a couple thousand years ago about all disease beginning in the gut is certainly being shown to be biochemically and, and physiologically accurate. Um, a tremendous amount of what happens in our gut, uh, not just from our food, but also from the, the microbes in our gut, informs our immune system, uh, informs our nervous system, informs our metabolism. And, and so off, often the the data clues we're looking for can be found in a stool test. So there's a wide array of testing, hormone testing, um, as well as traditional medical testing. Now, there's a lot of pearls to be found in simple things like a, a CBC or CMP. Um, that's um, a complete blood count or a complete metabolic panel, which is very typical annual checkup lab work, if you will. Um, there's very often some pearls uh, in that data with regard to nutrient deficiencies as well. So I am a scientist at heart. I love data. And I think I do my best work in working with clients when we really have sufficient data available to inform the, the progress uh, that I take in working with clients one-on-one. -on -one. It seems to me that many times people uh, can understand something intellectually, especially when it comes to health. So you do that part. You get the intellectual part to these people. You could look and you could say, we've done this stool uh, sample on you. We've done this testing on your saliva and, and hormones, and this is what I find. So now they understand it from an intellectual level, but getting somebody to... Uh, change something that they've been doing all their life, especially in the society that we live in today with all of the good, bad, and ugly choices that are out there. How do you get somebody to uh, change and have it stay with them? That is a great question uh, because certainly uh, awareness of a fact or um, education of a fact does not in any way, shape, or form predispose one to change their behavior uh, in that direction. Uh, and I, 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 call, I like to, to say that my, my practice is really equal parts education because I think being able to explain uh, data or physiological facts or biochemical facts in a way that people can understand is really important um, so that we're not talking above people's heads, but we're really helping them to, to get it um, uh, mentally is very important. But half education, half inspiration, because if people are not really inspired to change their habits, no amount of education is going to make a difference. I think you raise an excellent point. I have um, perhaps the advantage that my typical client has uh, been struggling with some sort of chronic disease or sustained inflammatory symptoms for a number of years. Uh, the, the typical one has already seen a few specialists, has tried a number of medications, and if anything, has maybe achieved a little bit of relief, um, but certainly not full relief and, and definitely not healing. Uh, a lot of conventional allopathic treatment in chronic disease, not acute disease, but a chronic disease, is really about uh, band-aiding symptoms and helping people to feel better, which is wonderful, but not necessarily getting at the true root cause of disease and alleviating it. So I offer all that by way of saying my typical client is really sick and tired of being sick and tired. And in that sense, they're really already inspired 
Um, but, uh, but I think a, a key part of change for any of us is realizing that our behaviors to date have gotten us to, to where we are. And so it's really illogical to expect things to magically change unless we're willing to shift our behaviors. And uh, I think the, the strategy that works the best with most people is gradual step-by-step -step change. Uh, most of us are not willing to uh, turn our lives upside down in one fell swoop. But many, many people have committed to progress, and if, especially as they begin to feel better and their, their commitment, their faith, their, their confidence rises. We'll make a little bit of change this week and a little more change next week and a little more next week and a little more next week. And at the end of three or four months is in a completely different place than they were before, uh, having achieved that really gradually in a way that wouldn't have been possible if they tried to make the, the wholesale shift overnight. Hmm. Uh, um, I'd like to remind our audience, uh, because we have quite a few viewers right now, so if you would like to scroll down on your screen and ask a question or make a comment, please do so. And Remember to click submit and I can read it out to our guest or Dr. Woolman. And uh, if you would like to ask that question yourself, please feel free to call in because um, that's always lovely to hear your voice and we're always very welcoming of that. Again, the number is 323-476-3672 and the PIN is 607-393-POUND. Um, Tracy, this is so exciting what you do. It's, it's magnificent. Um, and for me, it's inspirational because you, you know the science, you know the data, because so uh, many people I've run into, that's what they want. That's, mm -hmm. they, they, they have to hear that. If it's not backed up by a science, they don't care. They, they, they don't want anything to do with it. You know, they, they want to know that it is all science-based, and so it gives them a different kind of hope. And I... I'm assuming that's because of the way our society is made up. Well, I, I think uh, something I really try hard to do is to really be a bridge for my clients between um, the guidance they're getting from their physician and then their their self-motivated efforts uh, to, to feel better that they might pursue based on what they hear in the media or what a friend told them or mm -hmm. what they saw online. I believe we've got this, we've got this big gap today uh, in between that, where um, the, your, your typical physician, certainly with Glenn accepted, um, your typical physician, I find, is not very schooled in nutrition, uh, maybe yeah. very interested, but certainly today, unfortunately, we still have the situation where your typical medical school does not promote any significant nutritional curricula. And so you certainly can't teach what you don't know. Um, and I think people are looking for an opportunity to make a difference in their own lives. They, they, they don't just want to um, feel like their wellness is a default or mm -hmm. that their genetics are a default. They want to do something about it and that they want to believe and know that their behavior can make a difference. And I, I love partnering with my clients' physicians uh, in terms of trying to be that bridge mm. for helping them to understand what they can actually do that will help them to feel better. And boy, once that starts and people actually see and experience better wellness, you know, my pain is gone. My headaches are gone. I'm not constipated. I feel better. I'm not depressed. I don't have panic attacks anymore. 
people get on fire with motivation mm-hmm. to make change. And, and that's like a, a firework. Uh, right. It just sh- shoots off like a rocket and people want more and more and more. And, and this is where I feel very strongly that there's a huge role for health counselors in general that is just burgeoning. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see it really explode um, within the next several years because people want that level of support. They really do. There's a huge mm-hmm. demand for, for health counselor support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it seems like uh, people are getting very tired of the bandages. It's like, you know, mm. you put the bandage on, but it's not quite fully healed. Well, if you're not healing from the inside, et cetera, uh, the, the awareness is growing. I, I believe that, that people are striving towards that. So I, I agree there. Um, now, are doctors open to working with you? Like, or is there a little bit of a hesitation, like you're crashing <laughs> in their territory a little bit? Um, I, I think the, the honest answer that, to that is it varies wildly. Um, I, there are a number of physicians that I actually, uh, partner with routinely. Um, I send my clients to them. They send their patients to me. Um, and it goes anywhere from, um, maybe client feedback, say my physician looked at all of the lab work that you'd like to see. And he's a okay with that. We're going to run it all. And, uh, I'll, I'll let you know what the results are. Uh, he'd like to, exchange emails with you to share interpretations and would like to know what you're going to do with me so that he can put that in your, my, um, my file, which is lovely. I, I welcome Ooh. the collaboration mm-hmm. and it goes from that all the way down to, um, I don't know what half of these markers are, or, um, I really don't think any of these are merited because you're not sick or you don't have mm. a disease that I would normally run these for. Uh, and I think that's, um, that's a challenge sometimes for the conventional model that is looking perhaps more often to manage disease rather than keeping people from getting it in the first place. Right, right. Which is what I'm, in some cases, I'm very focused on that, where maybe someone comes to me because of a, everyone in their family has heart disease and they don't want to get it. Uh, which is really my favorite type of person to help because it's a chance to get in front of not only their illness, but also their, um, their burden on the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Uh, how wonderful to help someone up front to help themselves and avoid being sick, avoid having huge medical bills, um, and avoid the quality of life crunch yes. that happens from feeling bad. Nobody wants to feel bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd say it really varies and, and everything in between. Uh, I love it when I receive a phone call or an email from a physician saying, I don't know why you want this data, but I want to know, can we talk? Mm. Um, and there's an opportunity to, to learn and have an exchange. Um, a, a lot of my training has come from the Institute of Functional Medicine, which is an amazing organization that provides continuing education, um, uh, primarily to physicians, uh, that is about exploring the biochemical foundation of disease um, and the interconnectedness of the body and the fact that what is happening in the gut can absolutely affect what's happening neurologically in the brain mm. or um, what's happening in the cardiovascular system can absolutely affect what's happening in the, um, the neurological system or in the immune system. Um, and that we're the the model of working with specialties um, breaks down in many areas of chronic disease because obviously um, the body is interconnected. Everything is uh, is affecting everything else. 
So uh, the answer to your question is the response varies wildly. And, mm-hmm. and that's okay. It's, everyone's coming at this from a, a different perspective. But um, sometimes the responses are, uh, are comical and sometimes frustrating. But, um, but we work with it and move on. And I do the best I can to support each and every client, no matter where their physician is coming from. Mm-hmm. And, and I would also think that, uh, which I've experienced a little bit of as well, is what the individual's insurance is willing to cover. Yes. That plays um, a huge part, I would, I would think. <laughs> it does. And I have to tell you, Christina, this is very interesting. I am amazed at what type of diagnostic testing some insurance companies will cover and other mm-hmm. ones won't. Um, even in the face of a formal disease diagnosis, it's astounding to me what I guess the medical staff, the medical research staff at various insurance companies has decided is or isn't helpful in helping someone to heal or helping someone to avoid future medical costs. Um, it, it really varies wildly. Mm. Um, and, uh, and certainly in some cases, uh, my clients um, find that their insurance company will not pay for a test, uh, but they pursue it anyway, even with out-of-pocket cash expenditure, because they want to be well. Um, the um, uh, often people's quality of life has suffered so much that they're more than willing to put um, non-insurance money, their own personal funds, into diagnos- diagnostic testing to get to the bottom of what's going on in their unique body. And, um, do, um, what about children? I mean, do you see quite a, a array of uh, age groups from children's to elders? Um, my, I do, I do work with a very wide variety of, um, of clients in terms of, um, of age and both sexes and backgrounds and everything. I don't have a, an expertise in working specifically with children. Uh, I've worked with a number of teenagers and I have certainly worked with parents who wanted to support their children in overcoming uh, various um, challenges. But for working with children directly, I think that that's actually better suited for working with a health counselor in person. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard for children to work with the whole remote uh, connection, and it's much easier for them to build trust mm-hmm. and rapport with uh, a health counselor in person. So there are a number of health counselors who do that very successfully, but mm-hmm. it's not a focus and certainly not an expertise of mine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cause, because I think of the, because your love and passion of diseases. <laughs> That there is so much that are, are, are that come up with children that, you know, of course, parents being parents, of course, and protective, they are so much now on the forefront of, of finding all the, the possibilities that would help support their child, that what you do would be so magnificent for them. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly, I think a big benefit of anyone working with a health counselor is that the changes that they bring on board generally end up being healthy, um, healthy and beneficial for their entire family. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Individuals are implementing it in a household or in a family environment. Um, I have a lot of passion for children and children's diets in particular because I think it's, it's all too easy for us to assume that they're just a kid, they can handle it. Uh, right. It's right, to drink all this soda and live off of sugar and flour and cheese, and um, their little bodies will handle it. There's plenty of time for them to get over it later, and, and it's interesting because we know through medical research that that is not true. 
um, while their little bodies are indeed resilient, we know that the beginnings of um, inflammation and, and the beginnings of even things like um, atherosclerotic plaque are uh, commonplace in the arteries of 13-year-olds. This has actually been studied. They are not immune to these effects. I think it is a credit to the resiliency of the human body that they can withstand the effect of it for a decade or more before this, the large-scale symptoms start to manifest maybe when they're in the 20s. But the, the trigger for that did indeed start when they were five, six, seven. Uh, and in that sense, I really want to encourage all parents who are, are fighting the battle are trying to feed kids healthy food, even though their peers, um, the food media, and to some extent, the health media is really working against them um, because it does matter. It is a, an important uh, effort, and it, it really is going to help to serve those children better for having healthier adulthoods. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's wonderful that you said that. I mean, um, it's, it's hard to imagine because through the generations it's, yeah, you know, you can give it to the child, they'll, they'll get over it. They, they can withstand anything. <laughs> you know? I see it all the time in the schools right now. So right. it's kind of, uh, it, it is frightening, but you know, it's, it's, it takes, uh, individuals like you and Glenn that come out and, and share and create that awareness that will help us as parents and, uh, educators to pass it down. Mm. We have you back, Glenn. (laughs) Tracy, I want to ask you a number of questions that I would like some quick answers on (laughs) and uh, and then see if we can go back and talk about them a little bit later. Uh, We hear all the time about diets and dieting, low fat, low protein, high protein, mixed carb, low carb. Uh, What's your thought quickly on diets and dieting? Uh, Well, let's see. Um, Generally, diets don't work. Uh, I believe the statistics are that 92% of people who go on a diet gain the weight back um, because ultimately the only thing that helps people to lose weight and keep it off is lifestyle change, permanent lifestyle change. Uh, As I said before, I think the way of eating that helps people to have their optimal weight varies by person. So there's not really a magic answer, but pretty much something that works for everyone in my experience is eating real food. Uh, as Michael Pollan likes to say, eating food, not food-like substances, mm-hmm. um, so real whole food, and eating a lower glycemic diet. And, and by that, I mean a diet that doesn't spike blood sugar very much. Um, and in particular, that's going to be a diet that minimizes sweeteners and also minimizes refined carbohydrates, like things made out of flour. Now, generally okay. speaking, our, our, our food culture is way too overloaded with both of those things. Excellent. What is uh, What are your thoughts on GMO products? Mm. Genetically modified organisms, uh, GMO. Um, that is a relatively modern way of hybridizing a um, a plant in a way that's totally unnatural. Um, we're basically crossing a plant with a bacteria uh, gene and giving the plant some characteristics that it would normally never have uh, in the wild, like resistance to um, a weed killer. Um, I think research actually, despite um, a lot of um, propaganda from the makers of, um, of GMO products, or uh, industry participants, I think the data is very clear that uh, GMO foods are well perceived by the human immune system as being foreign 
and can exacerbate uh, immune system reactions, especially things like uh, allergy and asthma. Um, the, the three foods that most people encounter on a daily basis that are almost universally genetically modified in the American diet are corn and soybeans and canola. And the only way right now in the U.S. to completely avoid GMO foods, which I do highly recommend, um, is to purchase organic foods. Um, the organic standard includes a number of different criteria, but one of them is um, the, um, uh, the screening out of any GMO um, ingredients. So as a result, I really recommend purchasing organic corn chips um, or purchasing organic soy milk. Because uh, it's the only way to make sure that you're not getting GMOs in those foods. What is organic? Uh, organic, um, as we use it today in, in food science, is um, food, in terms of plant foods, uh, foods that have been raised agriculturally or animals um, that have been uh, raised um, in a way that doesn't involve any synthetic pesticides. And that's the primary definition. Organic standard is actually a list of about nine or 10 particular tenants. But the primary one is the um, absence of synthetic um, pesticides or chemicals uh, involved in both the growth and then the processing um, of that food. And in that sense, it really is natural. Um, but um, there's interesting, there's definitely some gray space in the organic standards where um, Farms are still allowed to use some pesticides if there's no proven natural uh, way to, to prevent pests. Um, so the organic standard is not pure, um, but I really do believe strongly that it, it is in the best interest of everyone's wellness to eat as much organic food as they can find and as they can afford, which is limiting for a number of people on both fronts. The uh, diet that most of us grew up on and we see all the time, you think about steak and potatoes. And now we're talking about food combining, and we're finding out that maybe steak and potatoes, which has been a standard for so many years, is not necessarily a good idea. Talk to us about food combining a little and your thoughts on it. Okay, sure. Um, food combining is the science of uh, eating foods in combinations um, in, a, in a meal or a snack that are going to promote the efficient digestion and absorption of those foods. So when we consume uh, foods that are primarily protein, so things like the steak that you described, most of the digestion of that food is going to happen in the stomach, in the upper portion of the, the gastrointestinal tract, in a very acidic environment. Um, if you eat foods that are very high in carbohydrates, however, like the potatoes that you described, um, the digestion of those foods are going to begin in the mouth, but they're going to occur primarily not in the stomach, but in the intestines, in the lower part of the GI tract, in primarily an alkaline environment. And the notion of food combining is that when you put that steak that needs to be digested in an acidic environment with those potatoes that need to be digested in an alkaline environment in the same meal and chew and swallow them in the same meal, you're going to slow the digestion of both of them because the potatoes are going to wait for the steak 
to be digested first. Um, and, and then some people who, especially those who may have a, a sluggish digestive system or a sensitive digestive system, eating the steak and the potatoes together can result in symptoms like acid reflux, uh, bloating or belching, or a feeling of indigestion or fullness or fatigue after a meal. Um, that if they were to eat the steak separate from the potato, they would not experience that. And, and so I, I actually use the, the notion of food combining in my practice uh, often, especially because I, I focus on gastrointestinal illness, to help people to better digest their food by reducing the, the burden, the complexity of a digestive task for the body. Um, by separating um, foods that require more of an acidic environment, like proteins um, and things like uh, more acidic fruits, things like uh, berries are, are often digested uh, better together. Um, uh, salad greens go well with either category. Um, but basically separating things like maybe salad and chicken from things like um, um, beans and brown rice, which is more of a carbohydrate-centered meal that is well-digested together, but not when you combine the two. And, and to your point, a lot of American favorites, things like a hamburger on a bun or meat and potatoes or spaghetti and meatballs um, are really recipes for indigestion for a lot of people for that reason. Where can we find out more about food combining? Are there uh, websites or anything that would tell people this is what you should mix and this is how you shouldn't mix it? That is a great question. If you were to Google food combining, you would pop up with hundreds of, um, of sites. Um, there's actually an article about it on my website, uh, eatonpurpose.com. Okay. Um, if you go to the newsletter tab and put in the search <clears throat> food combining. There's an overview there of some of the simpler tenets of food combining that some folks may find helpful just as a place to begin. But uh, it is a, a, a widely practiced concept in the um, kind of the alternative health uh, arena and uh, is something easy for people to explore with on their own and see if it brings them relief. Okay. How about uh, probiotics? Hmm. Well, that's a meaty topic. We could do a whole show on probiotics. Um, I think we could do one on everything we've spoken about so far. We could. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Probiotics uh, generally are um, supplements, usually in capsule form, of dormant beneficial bacteria. Uh, it's it's a fascinating science and, and shocking to many people, Glenn, to learn that in the human body, we have tens of trillions of cells. But in a human gastrointestinal tract, we have hundreds of trillions of microbes. Um, They outnumber us 10 to 1. And and on many, many levels, our wellness depends on their wellness. And when someone takes a a capsule or a a dose of a probiotic, they're taking a, a little tiny amount of beneficial bacteria that are identical to the ones that we should have thriving in our gut. And because we do so many things in modern society that kills off these beneficial bugs, if you will, um, many, many people are suffering from a lack of beneficial bacteria in their gut, which can not only cause GI problems, but can actually trigger a whole host of immune system issues, uh, including autoimmune disease. Um, we, we do things like take a lot of over-the-counter medications, uh, especially things like... Um, 
over-the-counter meds like acetaminophen and ibuprofen, um, Tylenol and Advil and Motrin. These are really toxic to those beneficial microbes. Uh, we eat foods that have chemicals in them or a lot of preservatives or a lot of pesticides, and that also kills off the microbial balance. And, and while a probiotic is a teeny, teeny um, fraction of a percentage of the amount that we should have overall in our gut, Research does show that probiotic supplements are calming to the immune system. Um, they help to balance the immune system uh, in order to reduce um, symptoms or incidence of uh, allergy and atopy uh, in children. Um, I use a lot of probiotics in my practice and recommending them to clients. And, and it's probably uh, an, an everyday supplement that the vast majority of Americans could really benefit from taking just in terms of promoting wellness, uh, not getting sick as often, fewer colds, less flu, that type of thing. There are, there are a number of, uh, thank you for that, and there's a lot more that we should and could discuss on that. <laughs> That is two um, shows back to back. You know that. Easily. <laughs> yeah. I'm biting my tongue right now. <laughs> I know you are. I, I have to find out if the tongue is uh, a protein, a carbohydrate, or a fat. No, I didn't you... say I was eating it. I was just biting oh, it. <laughs> if you bite it hard enough. So I want to talk about very quickly we hear about bulimia, we hear about anorexia nervosa, a number of eating disorders that can be clinically disabled disabling to people. There's a new one coming out. Uh, there's a new one out now, orthorexia. Mm. Uh, uh, this is basically an obsession to eat healthy foods. And I just had a client uh, who had something like that. And I found that I was having a difficult time at, at times to try and convince them uh, that sometimes eating is okay, just not eating because not every food is perfect. Uh, What's your, what are your thoughts on that? Have you treated anyone with uh, this uh, eating disorder? I have. I have, and I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. I, I find that it's, it's probably something that was uh, unheard of 20 years ago. But as we learn more and more about um, chemicals and toxins and bacteria and other dangers in our food, um, orthorexia is just a, a type of... Um, paranoia, I think, and um, obsession that people can develop neurologically with the need for every morsel of their food to be as uh, supremely clean and healthy as possible. Uh, and, and while um, a general desire to eat healthily, I think, is good for all of us, when it turns into an obsession, uh, it can cause quite a lot of anxiety. I, I actually worked with a woman a couple of years ago who would have panic attacks if she didn't feel like she could verify that every bite of her food in a given meal was organic. And, and that's really, I think, an unhealthy extreme. Uh, you know, Glenn, a general guideline that I think is healthy for most of us is really anchoring our diet with, you know, at most about 90% of food that we know is good for us and that's going to serve us. And then allowing the other 10% to just be fun. Um, I, don't, I don't believe in being the food police because I, I think to your point, it makes us um, obsessed and, and probably unhappy. Um, food it nourishes our bodies and it drives our biochemistry, but it's also entertainment. It's uh, a big social vehicle in our lives. Uh, it's part of how we explore our world. And I, I believe in letting that kind of little bit of you be free, uh, especially when anchored with a the preponderance of a healthy diet 
to allow that other piece to be free and, and eat what you really want um, and to uh, not worry so much. So I do think there's a balance there. And I think um, a lot of what we're learning about the dangers in food is promoting in some people this obsession. And, and to your point, it's, it's not healthy. Mm, uh, I definitely trying to pursue health to the point of being unhealthy is not healthy. <laughs> Indeed. You, should. you know, we talk about uh, people, obesity now, it's, it's very big in our society and epidemic and almost pandemic around the world. Uh, and we always have said, oh, it's just about calories in, calories out, you're eating too much, stop doing this. But science, again, has, has taught us that there are some new things that we're finding in our bodies called leptins and ghrelins. Some of these hormones and amino acids that actually have some control over uh, our hunger and our appetite and our satiety. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that? I can, and I'm delighted to because, uh, as you said, uh, obesity is essentially a pandemic at this point. And, and I really want to encourage anyone listening to really, if you haven't heard it trumpeted enough, it is not a about calories in, calories out. Uh, certainly calories do matter, but we're learning more and more that the body is not a dumb bucket where I, I put fat in my mouth and it shows up on my arms or in my belly. The body is an incredibly uh, intelligent, self-regulating organism that has been evolving for tens of thousands of years uh, in order to try and help us to thrive in whatever food environment we might be in. And so uh, some of us have more highly developed genetic um, abilities to store food for the future. And, and it's important to remember that the way the body does that is via fat. Uh, we may think of it as unsightly or inflammatory, but from an evolutionary perspective, fat was really important. Uh, it is what kept early man from starving to death during cold, lean winters. And uh, leptin, we should start with leptin, is one of the primary hormones that we know has kept that from happening uh, over millennia. Uh, leptin is actually a hormone that by and large is made in our fat cells. Um, it's, um, it's made in adipocytes and circulates through the body and is actually penetrates the blood-brain barrier and informs our brain about the status of our body fat. And in a, in a good, healthy body that is not obese, maybe overweight, but not obese, our fat cells secrete leptin, which goes into our brain, and it actually triggers communication specifically in our hypothalamus. And it tells our body that, uh, to slow down eating. And, and when you think about it, if you have more fat tissue, more fat cells, you should have more leptin talking to your brain to say, stop eating. And our brain will naturally turn down our appetite, turn down our sense for hunger, and we will eat less. And this is part of how the body regulates uh, fat storage in order to keep us at a fairly constant weight over time, even though our, our eating may vary over a day, over a week, over month, over month basis. And so uh, leptin is a key part of the natural hormonal regulation of both appetite and metabolism in the body. Uh, in addition to regulating hunger, leptin uh, triggers a hormone cascade that changes our body's desire to burn body fat for fuel. 
Um, we're, we're actually fully capable of using fat for fuel, not just sugars. And, and when we have a good leptin response, uh, our body upregulates fat burning in order to keep us from storing too much fat. On the other hand, we have another hormone called ghrelin that is secreted in the tissue in the lining of our stomach, which promotes appetite, promotes hunger. Uh, it's stimulated by a number of things, including the emptiness of our stomach. Uh, it's one of the things that actually triggers the rumbling of the stomach that we associate with hunger that can actually interrupt us out of another activity to go and eat. And uh, ghrelin also penetrates the brain barrier and tells our brain, we're hungry. We need to eat. Food looks good. Um, it actually does that by triggering the release of a neurotransmitter called dopamine, which allows us to focus and get a, a reward, a biochemical reward from seeking food as well. So um, a lot of appetite balance is about keeping leptin and ghrelin in balance. Um, but unfortunately, when we get too fat, when we get too um, overweight, obese, our leptin signaling starts to um, fail, but our ghrelin signaling is working just as strong as ever. Mm. And what happens is we can become leptin resistant, just like people with diabetes or prediabetes become insulin resistant. And our cells do not want to receive sugar anymore. They, they block themselves off from it and they just shut down for receiving sugar. Your brain can get so uh, flooded with leptin signaling that it gets sick and tired of hearing that, hearing that signaling, and it literally shuts down and just doesn't want to hear it anymore and um, is unable to turn down your appetite. And so uh, even though the body is flooded with leptin because there's plenty of fat cells, the leptin signaling doesn't work. And unfortunately, there is a great tie between insulin resistance and leptin resistance. And this is one of, one of the reasons why people who have prediabetes or, or insulin resistance find that um, their, their, um, their body fat increase really gets accelerated. Things go, tend to do, go downhill quickly. But we know that when people can begin to choose a low glycemic diet and one that helps to heal insulin resistance, that will actually help to heal leptin resistance as well and reestablish that signaling which is very exciting in terms of self-healing of the body. It's not the kind of thing that happens overnight, but with a changed diet over a few months, um, that chemical signaling really will restore itself. That was a really nice answer. I think that helped a lot of people. We're speaking with Tracy Harrison, a wellness and health uh, consultant and coach who is a true scientist in the field of nutrition. Uh, Tracy, like we ask all of our guests we wonder if you have a health tip for us. I do, Glenn. Uh, I think out of everything that I have learned, um, if there's one thing in the nutritional arena that I think generally will help pretty much anyone in, in this modern day and age, it is to eat less wheat. Um, things made out of flour. Um, a, a lot of people are working under the mistaken belief that as long as it's whole wheat or whole grain wheat, that it's okay. And, and what we're increasingly learning, especially in the past 10 years of nutritional science, is that that's not true. Uh, even whole grain, stone ground, um, whole wheat bread still spikes blood sugar really terribly. Um, and, and because of how much we've hybridized wheat as a plant, 
we've turned it into a substance that a lot of our immune systems are not sure whether that's a food or a foreign invader. And and wheat is often at the root of some chronic um, inflammatory symptoms in my clients. So um, whether it's for metabolic or inflammatory or immune system or gastrointestinal reasons, I find the vast, vast majority of my clients feel better eating less and less wheat uh, in their diet overall. I find that too. Uh, But it's so hard, you know, to start with that. Christina, any uh, questions, any thoughts? Well, before I, I go on to that, I, Glenn, I'd like to share some questions that came in. Okay. <laughs> Hard to imagine. I told you all. <laughs> um, uh, one of them was, I've heard that it's actually a bad idea to drink water with your meal. Is this a myth or fact? That is a great question. Um, I find that drinking a lot of water immediately before a meal is a primary reason why a lot of my clients have acid reflux or indigestion. (sighs) Absolutely. Um, It is very important to be hydrated, but by far the, the, the healthiest times of day to hydrate is in between meals. And if you want to have uh, a big glass of water to hydrate before a meal, I think that's fine. But I would recommend doing it about a half an hour before a meal. And the reason being that our digestion, good, swift, efficient, blissful digestion, depends on having good, strong, acidic stomach juices. Because we want to really break down those proteins quickly and efficiently. Um, But if we put a lot of water into our stomachs right before we eat, that's really diluting the stomach acid and making it more alkaline, less acidic. It's like taking a a little bottle of cleaner and diluting it a hundredfold and expecting it to be as effective as a cleaner. It's not because it's diluted. And so um, I agree completely with what the, uh, the viewer is proposing. It is best digestively to be hydrated for sure, but to hydrate away from meals um, at least a half an hour before a meal so that your body has time to pass that water through before you begin the task of digestion. Uh, So you're recommending not even drinking the water during the meal? Uh, That's a great question. I certainly think maybe a little glass that you want to sip, maybe just to clear your throat or to cleanse your palate in between dishes. But uh, a real little glass where you just sip a little bit as needed for those purposes rather than a big glass for purposes of hydrating. Well, I have my wine, so I'm adding to the acidity. (laughs) (laughs) Show that that a little bit of wine, if it's not too much, will actually assist digestion. Indeed, there's there's a reason why that's been an accompaniment to meals, again, in moderation, Mm -hmm. but meant to meals for millennia. Yes, yes. Oh, good. I'm doing the right thing. No. <laughs> um, another question is, uh, I love a more Mediterranean-based diet, but have been told to stay away from nightshade veggies. Any thoughts? Uh, nightshade vegetables are a group of vegetables 
that have um, some proteins in common, which is why they're grouped together. Uh, it includes uh, tomatoes and peppers and potatoes and eggplant uh, primarily. And it's a category of vegetables that some people are sensitive to. And, and by that, I mean when they eat the foods, their immune system secretes antibodies uh, as though it were responding to our foreign invader of some kind. And nightshades in particular are implicated often in arthritis. Um, arthritis is an inflammatory condition that, um, again, has a reason. And, and in many, many clients over the years, I've helped them to either significantly improve their arthritis or actually to get rid of it. And you have to find the culprit. And in some people, not anywhere near all, but in some people, nightshade vegetables are a trigger. And so it's not that there's a problem with all vegetables. It's just that those in particular, for their unique immune system, are inflammatory triggers. Uh, and in order to get the benefits um, from removing the inflammation, they really do have to eliminate those foods, cold turkey, 100%. Um, there's a couple of articles on my website about arthritis if folks want to learn more about uh, nightshade vegetables and what's included in them and um, what, that, um, what that entails. Uh, there was a great, actually a great great editorial in the New York Times Magazine section just last month about foods being triggers for arthritis in a, in a little boy, uh, in a five or six-year-old little boy that my heart went out to his parents. They struggled for a year to find the root cause of it and identified food. Uh, in that case, not nightshades. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, gluten and dairy containing foods were that little boy's triggers. But in many cases, there is of food or a cluster of foods that their immune systems think is a foreign invader. And it's triggering the production of inflammatory chemicals that tend to cluster in joints um, and um, be the, um, the source of that um, inflammation buildup that causes so much pain and discomfort. Thank you. Uh, one more question is, um, if I'm in a third world country and I'm afraid to drink the water, like in Mexico City, for example, would this be a mild form of uh, orthorexia? Uh, I think it would be a, a, a more than a mild form of intelligence. <laughs> um, wow, we need to drink a lot of water. And, and I think um, in the sense that we consume more air than we do water and more water than we do food, I think doing the best we can to find clean sources of water is really important. Now, having said that, it's important not to be dehydrated um, because dehydration starts all sorts of biochemical badness in the body. You have to do the best you can with what's available. But I think even simple water filtration, uh, even very simple using a, you know, like a Brita charcoal filter, that type of filtering is so much better than not filtering at all. Um, but something to try and get some of the um, heavy metals, some of the uh, chlorine and fluorine and that sort of thing out of our water is a giant step in the right direction. Um, and and doesn't, it's not that expensive uh, in terms of filtering whatever may come into your household. So I recommend doing what you can. And then beyond that, uh, really accepting that your body does have methods for detoxifying. Um, and when we do the best we can to keep from overloading those pathways, our body um, 
does have pathways for um, overcoming those toxins and processing and getting rid of them. So it's not that the body can't handle any toxins. It's just that generally our long-term wellness is best served when we do the best we can to screen them out before we consume them. So I think it's about balance, but sometimes simple solutions, uh, you know, like just the filtering pitchers can make a big difference. Um, So I do, now it's my turn. (laughs) I know we're we're sort of past the top of our hour, but uh, getting back to what you were speaking about with the wheat and the glutens and things like that, uh, do you find that there is a difference between the breads that are sprouted wheat breads as opposed to the regular flours? Uh, That's a great question. And in some people, yes. Um, So sprouted grains in general, I mean, people are going to eat wheat. Um, I do recommend the the sprouted forms of grains, mostly because for for the majority of people, they are easier to digest. Mm. Despite the fact that our, our American food culture is obsessed with grains, they are relative newcomers um, in the food culture for, uh, for humans. Um, we really only had grain agriculture for a little less than 10,000 years, and humans have been around for many, many times longer than that. And there are a number of cultures that are just not well genetically adapted to processing uh, uh, the seeds from grasses, which is what grains are. And, and so... Um, some people find they digest the sprouted grains better. Other people find the sprouted grains give them more indigestion. Um, there is some uh, nutritional research showing that the sprouted grains may have higher levels of lectins, which are um, uh, essentially markers on proteins and foods that can trigger our immune systems to respond to them negatively. Um, but the bottom line is wheat is still wheat. I mean, that's the primary answer to your question. Wheat is still wheat. If people are going to eat it, they might explore or experiment with which feels better from a digestive perspective. I do find it varies, but it's still wheat. Um, And in general, um, I find that switching to sprouted grains when it's the immune system that's reacting to a food, not not the gastrointestinal system, not a digestive issue, but the immune system that's responding to a food like with with headaches or eczema or um, um, uh, allergy of some kind, um, it doesn't really matter whether it's sprouted. Um, The body is still reacting to it as a foreign protein. So if an individual really needs to have their breads, <laughs> and they, you know, it's, it's like the stick and potatoes you're saying, Glenn, is, uh, you know, I, I, being Asian, we don't really come from the stick and potatoes, <laughs> but the Portuguese side does. Um, you know, if they really have to have their breads, would you recommend they do something like a spelt bread or an Ezekiel bread? Um, I do think... Um... For for the majority of people, the reaction I'm talking about is really not so much about gluten. I mean, we're kind of obsessed with gluten-free, which definitely plays a role in some other arenas. And, and again, that's a whole other uh, talk session. But um, for most people, it's about wheat. So to your point, choosing other grains, even if they contain gluten, like um, whole rye. Whole rye is a fabulous bread that's uh, actually preferred in a lot of European countries. It's quite low glycemic. It's been shown to um, actually um, deactivate a number of genes that um, promote um, metabolic syndrome. Um, So whole rye, whole barley, um, spelt is another option as well. Um, These tend to be better choices than just 
wheat. Um, and again, wheat, unfortunately, is the, the primary grain that we've really hybridized the heck out of it um, over the past 50 years, 50, 60 years in particular, so that the wheat we're consuming today is certainly not the wheat that my grandmother grew up on, not even close. It is a different plant. Um, so biochemically, it looks different to our immune system. Um, so I really recommend people explore um, other um, alternative whole grain breads. Um, things like Ezekiel bread is a multi-grain, but it does still include wheat in it. Um, most Ezekiel bread um, is uh, a multi-grain. It's very often sprouted, but it does still include wheat. Ooh. So I think there's an opportunity to explore different breads. Some people find that um, when they eat a sourdough bread, the fermentation specifically of the, um, the microbes that are in sourdough as a, a fermenting agent helps to um, uh, denature the proteins enough so it's not as inflammatory to their body, which is a really interesting um, learning. It's an ongoing area of research in nutritional science. So I really recommend people explore what makes them feel best. You know, eat purposefully, take notes. Uh, what do you eat that the next day makes you feel better versus what do you eat that the next day doesn't make you feel so well? Uh, I think um, most of us uh, could really uh, do with being a little more insistent on choosing food that makes us feel fantastic. Um, there's really no reason why we shouldn't feel fantastic every day. Oh, I'm all with you on that one. <laughs> that one makes me bounce. <laughs> <laughs> I am uh, grateful to our very special guest, uh, Tracy Harrison, a wellness and health consultant and coach and a true nutrition scientist, uh, for sharing her wisdom and expertise with us. And I look forward to uh, many more episodes with Tracy, if you're willing to do that. I know we have a lot of questions and a lot of areas that are really going to be beneficial for all of our viewers and listeners I'd also like to thank all of my teachers and healers for allowing me on my journey. And I thank you all for joining us today. Look forward to uh, traveling next week with Christina as we explore another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, searching for health. Uh, Tracy, I would like to thank you again so much for being a part of today's show. And until our next meeting, I wish you all optimal health. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much, Tracy, for honoring our community. This was such a blast, but it, it's, it's, it's like, well, we don't want it to be over yet. <laughs> I appreciate the opportunity. And we'd like to thank each and every one of you for joining us on this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. We invite you to join us live every Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Time, 1.30 Eastern Time, Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, followed every other week with Flowing Into Awareness with Anatara. You can always contact Dr. Glenn Woolman at myyogahub.com forward slash gwoolman or follow him on Twitter at Glenn Woolman. And of course, you can reach him through his own site, glennwoman.com and be sure to learn about his metaphor square breath until we meet again namaste that was easy 
<laughs> no, it wasn't because it wasn't so easy to wrap this one up. <laughs> How fun, isn't? But aren't these topics exciting? I mean, I think nutrition is sexy. Oh, it's fun. I am right with you. I, I just, I mean, I, I want to get a budget to fly you out here and <laughs> do some educating. You know, I, I just got the. Um, I was just telling Glenn uh, uh, last month they implemented uh, in my in the school system here in Los Angeles in the public system certain schools in the inner cities um, that they have breakfast in the classrooms mm. because the parents weren't even able to get their children there on time ten minutes before the bell rings uh, to receive the breakfast. So they begun to implement the breakfast in the classroom. So when the bell rings, they go to their class, they eat breakfast for 15, 20 minutes, <laughs> jamming that food down while they're having instructional time. But at least the children are getting food in their stomachs. Hey, as, as non-ideal as that might be, I'm, I think I'm so grateful that they're getting it and they're getting an opportunity to eat. And I, I think the yes. number that are sent off to school today with no food is heartbreaking yes. because... I couldn't concentrate. I don't know how a five-year-old is expected to concentrate. Um, I couldn't concentrate without breakfast. Um, it's, but- it's really ridiculous. I mean, some of them arrive there and, you know, I, I'm working, I, I am one of the volunteers, so I go in every day. And uh, to watch some of these five-year-olds who haven't even had dinner from the night before, it's, as you say, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> it really is heartbreaking when they're looking at, and they've just completed all their, their breakfast and they're looking and going, is there more? <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, you know, very, very hard to, to stomach that. But um, I just, of course, here I am. My son packs his lunch and breakfast every day. Uh, so he has his home, home food that he brings from home. Um, and I, I pick up all the packages and I read them. And I finally approached the principal the other day and I said, excuse me, I said, if I'm willing, would you give me the blessings to possibly make this into a pilot elementary school to change the food? <laughs> and he looked and he laughed and he said, oh, yes. Yeah. It, it, the research on this is really very clear, Christina, that when you bring different food into a school environment, kids do better. Oh, yeah behaved, their, their whole quality experience as little people at school is better. They have better grades. I don't think this is up for discussion anymore. We just have to have the social and the economic will to prioritize it. Yes. Yes. I, I, I agree. It's, it's about banding together and creating the change. And, and he did say, you know, it's, I'll give you the blessings, but the school board is another thing. And I said, yeah. well, it's about gathering the parents together. We're the taxpayers. And if, you know, if we really want it, we have to make it happen. And it's a pilot program. Let's just try. Let's, you know, one drop is a thousand waves. Even if we can change one meal for the next year. I just met a, the principal of another high school where she approached, she, we, we just got into talking and she says, oh my gosh, you're, you're right in line with what I'd like to do. And she's actually gotten the, the blessings to be the pilot high school down here in Southern California to change you know, all the vending machines and the foods in the cafeteria. So I, it's just, as I say, it's so exciting. And even though I feed my son what I feed him, you know, the, the friends and, 
they always look over at his lunchbox and go, what's that? (laughs) Why are you eating that yogurt every day? (laughs) Why do you get so much fruit and vegetables? (laughs) There's a famous chef at a private school in in Manhattan called Chef Bobo, who um, and, and, and he's a chef and he only hires employees, uh, for his school kitchen who are also culinary students. And he's written a book, actually a cookbook. And it's amazing what he gets these kids to eat. But part of his formula for success is bringing food into the classroom. And he'll come in with a big stalk of Brussels sprouts and explain to kids, you know, this was growing in the garden out back. Do you know what this is? And let's talk about it. And you're going to be seeing this in your lunch a few times in the next week. And maybe bringing in samples for the kids to try. It sounds so... it um luxurious, but it's very cheap to provide this mm-hmm. type injection of nutrition and food education for children. We just have to do it. Um, but he talks about, you know, how, um, how much fun it's been bringing this education to kids and how much kids want to participate and offering after-school cooking lessons. And they get to spend elective time out in the garden in the bag, tending to the vegetables that they're later going to eat. And it just, you know, kids get passionate about things they can be involved in. Mm -hmm. I certainly have seen that if I can get in a kitchen and help a child to prepare with their own hands a healthy dish, they have to really hate it to not eat it. Right. Because their pride is caught up in it and it makes a huge difference. Yeah. I'm right with you on that. I love that. (laughs) Now I was getting the parents in on it. That's the, that's the next step. The kids are one thing. They're actually, you know, they're easy to influence. It's the parents. In many cases it is. Absolutely. And, and, of it is not, I mean, it's certainly not ill-intentioned. It's just the belief of, I'm going to spend money on that. I'm going to put time into making it and there's no way they're going to eat it. And it's sort of shooting themselves in the foot before they even begin. Yes. Um, I think lots of times parents really benefit just from some education about making healthy eating fun. How do you turn it into a game so that it stops being this dread of, here we go again, I'm going to turn something healthy and they're going <clears> to, <throat> there's going to be a fight. There are ways around that. And I think parents benefit from some tools in order to help to facilitate that. Yes, yes. Oh, this is like so much fun. We could go on for days. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think so. I think all of your questions were answered, all of my questions or our questions were answered very nicely by yeah. you. But And uh, it just left it so that there's it's clear that we could take each of those topics. We could have a discussion on probiotics. We could have a discussion on, we didn't even discuss reading labels or raw foods and a number of other things that I want to go over. So we need to have you back again. But, <laughs> we, but I, no, no, Glenn, it's like, I, I was sitting here thinking, no, we, we have to do a, tro- a show, just Tracy Harrison show. 